Well, let me just add my two cents. These two, Rachel and Melissa, these are two powerful women in terms of kingdom impact. And so we've been so blessed to have Rachel with us all these years. I'm glad she's still here. We'll still be benefiting from her being here. I've, she's kind of made her way into the Mashburn family. Me and my brother, you know, and our family's here. We do some holiday meals together, often at her house. And, and we've been real blessed. She says she's the sister we never wanted. And, uh, and so uh, it, it's great having her. And Melissa is just a, I cannot wait for us to feel the impact that she will have here among us in her full-time capacity now. So grateful to her and her family for uh, for answering that call. So we are in our third of a three-week series of teachings on what Jesus and the rest of the New Testament authors call the kingdom. So if you're a guest today, you're coming in on the tail end of that, but that's okay. Now, I'll just mention that hopefully those of you who've heard this, you remember that when we are talking about the kingdom, whether it's the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of Jesus or just the kingdom, we are not referring to a place. The Bible is not referring to a place. It is not a place on the map with boundaries. It's not a matter of place. And so that's why I've been preaching from Romans where Paul says the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And again, there's not an insignificant word in that sentence. And we're not even doing justice in this three-week series. But we have already covered two of those matters, peace and joy. And this week, we are going to be covering the kingdom matter of righteousness. And you may have noticed, I took these words out of Paul's order. I didn't do them in in the order that Paul reports them in Romans. Now, why is that? You might be asking, and even if you're not, I'm going to tell you. But partly because I could not wait to talk about peace and joy with you. Those are two of my favorite subjects for Christians. I think those are the two earthbound gifts of the kingdom for believers. A, a kingdom peace and a kingdom joy that is maintainable and, and present no matter what circumstances will come your way. That's what the Bible unabashedly says and that is what I am constantly trying to determine if it can be done. And it's, it's driven. Having you experience peace no matter what happens for the span of your life from now to the end of it. Having you experience joy Experience, not just intellectually accept the doctrine as outlined in the Bible, but experience peace and joy no matter what happens for the rest of your life. It has really driven and defined a lot of my ministry, I realized as I was preparing for today. This is, I couldn't wait to talk about those two. So that's one of the reasons. But the other reason, and more significant, is because righteousness, while it's a common word in Scripture, it's not common in our vocabulary. And frankly, we as Christians are typically pretty fuzzy on what this word actually means, even when we read it often throughout the New Testament and throughout the Bible. It's just not something we use all the time. Like, let me just ask you, if you had to come up here and I gave you the mic and define righteousness, what would you say? Would you know what to say? I don't want you to... Be ashamed if it's a little fuzzy, even in how it's used in Scripture. I asked one of our ministers, I was wrestling with this this week, how am I going to define righteousness? And, and I asked him, how would you define, I asked him this. 
how would you define righteousness? And he kind of leaned back in his chair. And I don't think beads of sweat physically popped up on his forehead, but he, he realized, he's like, hmm, oh, and he hemmed and hauled him in. He goes, man, pop quiz. And it, that was his posture. He's not, we don't really totally know as a minister of the gospel. He did give me a very good definition of righteousness, but he had to think about it. So today we have to think about it a little And so I want to do that. And I knew it would take a little bit more effort to explain to you what righteousness is. Not that it's too complicated, but it is a little fuzzy to us. And it's too important to not give its due. So I didn't mind having a couple of extra weeks to prepare. And one of the reasons that it's a little bit tougher to explain is because to explain the kingdom matter of righteousness from the Bible, you need to understand it in context of a couple of other terms, a couple of other issues in the Bible, okay? Because, and they're all related to each other, okay? That's what this diagram is kind of trying to say. So first is righteousness. That's what we're going to be talking about. The second concept is salvation, okay? There's a relationship between salvation and righteousness, and then there is a relationship between righteousness and salvation with a third concept, and it's called righteousness. You might be going, oh, Brian, you said two concepts. That's, you're repeating a word. That's, that's right. That's why this is having to be unpacked a little bit because the word righteousness is used in a couple of ways in Scripture, I know, it's like the Bible. Could you not simplify it a little bit? I mean, why are you doing this to us? It forces us to have ears to hear, and we've got to read. Now, this is not a foreign concept to most of us in English speakers, okay? That we're used to words that can have two separate meanings. So don't act like this is new. I went to a website, an English professor had written a website about homonyms. That's what those are. And I found some as examples. So one was bark. So in my front yard, I've got a tree that has bark. And if you went to that tree in my front yard, inside I have a dog that will bark. Okay? And so those aren't just two totally different definitions. You'll notice one's a noun, one's a verb. One implies a thing. Okay? The other one implies an action. So they're not even the same in nature. Another one is the word fall. Simple one. I like fall weather might be a thing. That's a thing, right? The fall is a thing, and I don't want to fall. Okay? Which, again, that implies an action. One is noun. One's more of a verb. And then just one more, a letter. So, of course, a letter. You know what a letter is. Someone writing a letter and then you can also letter in an activity, like in school, in, in band. You can letter in orchestra. You can letter in football or baseball. And that's more of, so one is a thing and the other one is an action or an achievement. And then there's a third one for letter that I realized as I was reflecting on this that Jake actually made me aware of. When I had my three kids all home last, we sent them out to eat. Callie wanted to drive. Shay didn't want her to. And Jake just said, letter. All right. I'm sorry. That was really cheesy, Dad. I apologize. Okay, but you get the idea. You get the idea. Righteousness is one of these words that can be used in two different ways in Scripture. And you've actually heard me describe these words. Whenever I read Scripture, you you may not have noticed this, but whenever I'm reading it and the word righteousness comes up, I always pause and I look up at you and parenthetically tell you what I believe it means. 
just because I think it's so fuzzy, I'm always trying to clarify it. What you may not have noticed is I always say one of two different things when I do that for you. So one version of righteousness, I always, I'll say this is rightness with God. You remember me saying that? This is rightness with God or right standing with God. It's, it's almost more of a, it's a thing. It's more of a legal term almost. You, we got to have right standing with God. That's righteousness in one New Testament sense. And then the second one, I'll always lift my head and I'll say living rightly. That's what righteousness means, living rightly. That's more of a verb, more of an action. It's, it's doing the right things. It's living rightly, okay? So these are two separate terms, even though they're the same word. And I don't even, I, it is so important for you to read carefully and know, discern which one is being used in which verse Or you, look at the difference in these. You will leave scripture and call something Christianity that scripture never intended to be called Christianity. If you get those mixed up. You following me? This is so important. But this English teacher on that website, I go, oh, she explains it perfectly. So this is what it means. This is my warning. It says, when it comes to words with multiple meanings... It is wise to read and reread those sentences. Why, professor? The wrong context or form can change the meaning significantly. And so this is important. This is an important concept. And you can see why I put this off. It's hard to unpack this a little bit as we read scripture. So we're looking mostly at Paul concerning this kingdom matter of righteousness. But of course he got it from Jesus. So I want to give a quick word of how important this topic is to Jesus, and then we'll dive into what it means and the good news that's in it, okay? So listen to Jesus. This is in his famous Sermon on the Mount. He says this on Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the thing we're supposed to be desperate for. When I say hunger and I say thirst, I'm not talking about what you're experiencing when I preach a little long and you're hungry for lunch. I'm not talking about that. We're talking about a starvation and being famished, okay? Being exhausted, dehydrated. It is a hunger and thirst as if life depended on it type of urgency that is being listed here. And if you will turn that desperation to righteousness, then you'll be filled, That's how important Jesus says it is. And he doesn't stop there. One chapter over, he adds this, and this might sound familiar to you in Matthew 6. He says, seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these other things you're longing for will be given to you as well. He says as a matter of highest priority and out of desperation as if your life depended on it, go after righteousness because, guys, it does. Your life depends on righteousness. It is so important. I passed another one of your ministers in the hallway while I was in the middle of doing this. And I said, man, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to, how to define righteousness. And he just stopped and said, it's everything. And I went, that's, that's right. He's right. It's everything. So lean forward. I do not want you to miss what I'm about to say today. This is so central to what we believe as Christians and to what we have in the kingdom. And I don't want you to miss it. One more little setup like Felix did. At the end of the book of Acts, there was this guy named Felix. He was a Roman governor. He has a real interesting story. But he was married to a Jewish woman. And 
Paul, when he was arrested, was sent to this guy for a season of time. And Felix would have him come in. Because Felix, know, Scripture says, Felix knows quite a bit about the way, about Christianity. Listen, listen to what happened here. I've got two reasons to point out this Scripture to you. He says, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. And he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, pause. I want you to notice what concepts he talked about when he's talking to this non-believer about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, keep that in the back pocket, Felix said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. I want you to note two things. First, the three things that Paul discourses about and tries to unpack with Felix when he's talking about this faith in Jesus Christ are the same three things that that I came up with that we need to talk about when we're talking about righteousness. We've got righteousness, that is the rightness with God. Self-control, if self-control is defined as those things that you should not do, you don't do them, and those things you should do, you do those, then that is living rightly. That's the other definition of righteousness. And then judgment, which is whatever it's going to look like. That's the day upon which we decide. We are, it is decided whether we go to heaven or not, so we're saved or not. And so he did those same things. But the second reason I want you to notice Felix is because he was right there. He was hearing a discourse about the everything, about everything. The thing that his wife grew up learning about that was set up for, and he just sent him away. The message of life was right there. And I don't know. I don't know if he was just struggling with this discourse. Paul's getting a little complicated. You know, I wish he had a story to tell that'd be easier for me to listen to. Or, you know, or, or I don't know. I just, I'm just got ADD and I can't focus that long. And so he just sent him away and he's going to, I'll hear about this greatest news ever when it's more convenient for me. I don't want you to do that today. So lean in. Listen, this is everything. Nothing short of everything. Righteousness is what you need to qualify for eternal life. Rightness with God. This, this goes without saying. Like, you don't even have to turn to a scripture to explain this because every religion that exists on the planet has this in common. Every religion on the planet has some method that it is put together for its adherence to get right with God or right with the universe or right, whatever their God is, even if it's the self. It is, we've got to get right. That's the salvation you're looking for. So this is the same in Christianity as it is in every religion. This part right here. And it makes sense. We know this is right. Even in a relationship with each other, with me and Carrie, if we, we need to keep our relationship right. I want right relationship with Carrie if I want to be saved. And so a verse, and this is the whole Old Testament setting this up, and a verse that I found that I could use tons of stories and tons of texts, but I found this proverb that says it as concisely as I can and even starts the explanation and the connection to the other kind of righteousness. It's Proverbs 12. It says, In the way of righteousness there is life. Along that path is immortality. 
So that right there, tucked away in Proverbs, pretty good setup of the whole Old Testament. But something that we kind of know already, that if we're going to get right with, if there is a God, then we need to get right with God, and that's the pathway to salvation. That's the pathway to this life. Life here and life for eternity. And this verse actually starts talking about the other righteousness, which is living rightly, because it's talking about the way of that right standing with God, the way, and that comes through living rightly. So this seems straightforward enough. Here's a little diagram, okay? You live rightly enough, then you achieve rightness with God, and then you're saved. That's the story of the Old Testament. That's why the law was sent to us in the form of the Ten Commandments. You live that way, God says, and we're good. We're good. That's the whole thing. But here's the problem. Here's the problem we found. And if you were here for the whole year we did on the Old Testament, it got depressing because over and over and over and over again, we learned this lesson. We can't live rightly enough. We can't do it. It makes perfect sense that you need to live rightly to have right relationship and that God would grant salvation if we have it. There's a huge problem as they tried over and over and over again for generations. They kept learning the lesson that they can't do it. They were extremely made conscious of this sinful way within them that they could not defeat. And this in spite of a God in the Old Testament that gave them chance after chance after chance, tried little variations of systems after systems after systems with different people and different messages and different angles on trying to call them back to that way of life. They would keep that relationship right. And they couldn't do it. And in Isaiah, this prophet, he's talking about this in Isaiah 64. And then he speaks for all the people this grand conclusion that we had too when we read the Old Testament, only they were living it. And he speaks for them in verse 5 when they say, we continue, in spite of all your greatness and second chances, we continue to sin against your ways. And so they ask what any humbled, humiliated, sinful, all my trying doesn't do it human would do and ask the question, then, wait a minute. You got to live rightly to be right, to be saved. Then how can anyone be saved? Anyone? How then can we be saved? And then they declared a verse I learned growing up. Maybe you did too. They looked at all of the good stuff that they had tried and had done because they weren't horribly awful all the time, but they declared and realized all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Take all the generations of good and it, and it doesn't matter. The rag has to be clean. And take all of our righteous acts, mine personally, and generations from my forebears, and put them all together, and it's still like filthy rags. It's horrible. It's pretty clear what this prophet is saying. We can't do this. Any effort we put forth will not be good enough because the standard to get to heaven is perfection. That's the standard. Perfection in living rightly is necessary for rightness with God. 
So is it any surprise where they landed? Wait a minute. Then who can be saved? This is horrible news. And it's the message of the whole Old Testament. What was God thinking? Wait, why send the Ten Commandments? Why send this way of life that all you got to do is live up to that and we're good? When he knows we can't live up to that. And the Ten Commandments is not a real high bar, guys. Don't murder. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. I mean, it's not a real high bar. And we can't do that. We've proven it over and over. So what? What's he doing? Why did he send this if it was just going to set us up for failure? The New Testament comes in and confirms. That's exactly what it does. That is exactly what it does. And it confirms our worst fear. Now we'll move to our text in Romans. Paul's unpacking this and he says, Therefore, no one... Here's the bad news, guys. No one will be declared righteous in his sight. No one will have right standing with God by observing the law, by living rightly. Rather, so what's the purpose? Through the law, we become conscious of sin. And to that I say, well, mission accomplished. I am definitely conscious of my sin. I've proven it over and over and over and over again. And since you have to live rightly in order to be right with God to be saved, there's not a lot of hope in this consciousness. They say knowing's half the battle. Knowing on this kills hope. And our older people who find themselves on their deathbed, they find themselves going, oh, I just wish I've done enough because they have spent their life doing what they tried in the Old Testament too. And then many Christians still try today, praying enough, going to church enough, knowing enough, being in the Bible enough, doing enough social justice out in the world on behalf of Christ like Justin talked about. Cleaning up our moral lives enough and then we just hope at the end of the day that it was enough. But we know, our hearts know. Take all the good we know. It's filthy rags. Might be a little less filthy than it used to be. It might be a little less filthy than someone else out there in the world that we compare ourselves. And so we grab hold of the little progress we made. We grab hold of someone else who's worse than us and we try to wrap up our hope in that. Maybe, maybe God just knows my heart that I'm really trying. We fall into all these things. That's what the Old Testament gives us, and he confirms it. No one is going to be declared righteous by living rightly enough to do so. So the only conclusion is no one will be saved unless, unless, unless God was using all this consciousness of sin to set up the only way unless he had something else in mind unless maybe he really wasn't shocked by all of this he just needed us to come clear about it and become clear about it so that we would then do the only thing that we can do 
in order to have right relationship with God, righteousness, this kingdom matter, so that we can be saved. Are you ready, church? Because I hope I've set it up, because now here comes the text. This is the greatest news in the world. It's in the very next breath when he says, you're never going to be declared righteous by living rightly enough. He says, but now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, apart from living rightly, has been made known to which the law and the prophets point and testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. This is incredible news. It is true that you have to live rightly enough in order to have right relationship with God in order to be saved. If it is also true that we will not live rightly enough to have right relationship with God, then there has to be some other, some other hope, some other supernatural pathway to this and he says you got it that's the whole thing this is everything Jesus Christ who did live rightly enough to have right standing with God atoned that churchy word is he took your spot he paid the price for your filthy rags he died the wages of sin is what death So he paid the wages so that you could have his righteousness, his right relationship with God. That's the good news. And church, it is that or it is nothing in terms of Christianity. And anything else that's presented out there that you have adhered to or that the enemy has gotten in and poisoned it, it is a false religion. It is like every other religion on the planet trying to do enough to get right with God. The only question that remains is how do I connect with that? How do I, the kingdom's not a place. I don't just cross a border and I'm in it. Then how do I get in the kingdom with this matter of righteousness, peace, and joy? How do I get in? And he says it right here in this verse we just read, through faith in Jesus Christ. Now you may be fuzzy on what that means or what that looks like, but therein lies our work is to figure out what that means and what that looks like because it's the only way is faith in what Jesus did. It is true belief in the good news that a righteousness from God has been revealed. It's gifted to you. You're justified freely. You don't have to be good enough. You can stop trying because that's just making you tired. There's no one in the world that needs more tired If that's what we're reflecting the world, we're not reflecting Christianity. We're reflecting just another religion. Religion, I've heard this said once, religion says do. The gospel says done. Done. Your faith in this message, your very real belief in what Jesus did for you that we talk about and remember every single week is the thing that qualifies you to enter heaven. It's believing it. 
Belief in it. Faith in it. Putting your weight on that is what triggers every kingdom blessing. And that is how you enter the kingdom that is not just heaven. It's right now. And so what we talked about the last two weeks, peace and joy. Another reason I did those first is because those both come when you live within the kingdom matter of righteousness. It is your belief that you've been granted rightness with God that anchors your soul to peace and joy no matter what happens in the world. This is everything. And he has supplied it. He has supplied it. Now I want to pause here. I just want to ask a question and I want you to raise your hand. How many of you have ever in your life subscribed to that other false Christianity? The one that says, man, if I can just do enough. Raise your hand and keep it up, please. The one that says, if I can just do enough. If I, oh my my goodness. God help us. Keep it up. If you've ever subscribed to this or been taught this overtly, or been tempted to think that you need to study or pray enough or confess enough or repent enough or get it right enough, then maybe you're saved. Just keep your hand up and look around real quick. Let's just be social here. Look around. Okay. Look, if that's the Christianity you subscribe to or taught, then you were subscribed to a false religion. And it's the same as every other religion in the world. That is not our gospel. Listen, Felix, listen. Don't wait till it's more convenient or presented in a more clever way. Listen, because this is everything. This is everything. This will change your life. And this will spill out from you through that Holy Spirit like living water and that kingdom righteousness and that kingdom peace and that kingdom joy. You won't just stay in it no matter what comes your way. You'll deliver it. You'll be a source of that. You'll be a light of that to the world. And we frankly have no right to be communicating anything else to this dark world. We don't need to add to its darkness with a fake false religion that tells everybody, wear yourself out so that when you die, you can cross your fingers and hope it was enough. That is not it. That is not what our kids need to learn. That is not the truth. Okay, I've got a few takeaways for you, but I want to ask our our ministers and our elders to go ahead and stand up, move around the room. They're going to move out in the uh, lobby and outside for those of you who might need a touch this morning. But I've got a few takeaway statements, six of them. They won't take long. Implications that I hope I'm saying one of these six for someone in here today. These are true if you've given up trying to develop your own self-righteousness and living rightly, and you have received God's righteousness. And if you have not done that, these things are available to you to be true. Statement one, and you just amen it and agree with it somehow, if, you like, if this was for you, I want to know. When I couldn't do enough to save myself, Jesus did it for me. That's true if you subscribe to what the Bible calls Christianity. Second, I do not work for God's love. I work because of God's love. This is so cool to me. Christianity flips what makes sense all around from living rightly 
to righteousness with God, to salvation. He flips it around. He changes. He says, you're right with me. You're saved. And so, because of that, we're motivated to live rightly. That's where the energy comes from. You can't keep it up anyway. You'll get tired. You need this fuel of the Holy Spirit. It starts with what he's given us. Number three, spiritual practices, spiritual rituals and practices can improve my quality of life and experience of the kingdom, but only Jesus can satisfy and save my soul. Listen, do not hear me say today, oh, you don't need to go to church and you don't need to Bible study and you don't need to pray and you don't need to clean up your life and repent and change how you live and the trajectory of your life and you don't need to make a difference out there in the world in the name of Christ socially for justice. You don't need to do any of that. You, you should do all of that. But as followers of Christ, we're motivated to do that because we're saved. We don't do it to try to be saved. Now, one more day of that. Now, one more hand up when that question is asked. Not here. Not through us. Number four is my favorite. The enemy can no longer condemn in me what God has already condemned and crucified on the cross. He'll try. He does. He whispers. He puts, makes us interpret circumstances to diminish ourselves, but this... He doesn't get to do that anymore. It's already condemned, crucified, killed. Now making it social. I do not need to compare myself with or judge others who are behind me in living rightly in order to feel better about myself. I do not need to compare my filthy rags with someone's filthier rags in order to grasp for hope or feel better myself. And I sure don't need to judge them in order to feel like I'm in, they're out. That goes away. You become a much friendlier, safer, loving person in the world to anyone, which is who Jesus is after. Anyone. And related, I am free from diminishing myself by comparing where I am spiritually to others who are ahead of me and living rightly. Done with that. I'm done reading that author and going, man, this guy. He gets it. I don't get it. Or hearing that preacher going, oh man, listen to that. I, goodness. Or looking at that neighbor or someone else in this room. Did you know the enemy uses you and the things you get right to diminish others in this room who don't happen to get that particular thing right? Because of the gospel, because of righteousness, you're free from diminishing yourself ever again when comparing yourself to someone, you can just be happy for them and be filled with hope that it's possible for a human being to do that. So I can too. These are some rich gifts. But they're only available to those of us who've given up trying to earn it. And instead, have taken the advice and instruction of Jesus to prioritize this, to seek this first, to hunger and thirst for this righteousness the right one not the living rightly as a means to rightness the granted rightness through your faith in this message all of the kingdom gifts come into reality and into your world you enter the kingdom every moment you believe it every moment you believe it this is why Jesus said the work of God is this 
to believe in the one he sent. It's all the work. It's what we're flaring up in each other every week. So if you need help on that walk, whether it's the initial steps or the continued ones, let's stand and let's ask God to bring this kingdom and let's seek this kingdom first.